Good afternoon and welcome on uh, a panel on autonomous weapons. Um, it's a panel about a new technologies in uh, military, in um, gun industry, in weapon industry. I've got uh, some very good experts to talk about it today. Uh, we have from right, Mr. Uh, Cedric Leighton, who is a military analyst. He's also a founder and owner of a cybersecurity firm, and he used to be intelligence officer in uh, US uh, Air Force. We have uh, Felim Kine, who is a long, he's a former journalist and long-term, now long-term human rights researcher, origin, you know, works for Human Rights Watch now, works for physicians for human rights. And we have uh, Professor David uh, Wetham, uh, who is a professor of military ethics uh, at the King's College in London. Uh, so, and they came, as you can see, from three different countries. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I will start right away asking Cedric, what are autonomous weapons? So the popular definition of autonomous weapons are weapons that are used without human interface. In other words, they're directed to do their things, uh, that whatever their mission is, through algorithms and through commands that are given to the machine independent, you know, initially they'll, be, of course, be input, at least at present, by humans, but then the action actually takes place independently of humans. Uh, it will execute the mission, it will take a, out a target, all of that without human intervention or human command is the, the, the theory behind them, and in some cases, the actual use of those weapons. Um, there is a, a huge movement against them. Uh, which was which started a couple of years ago, and uh, behind that movement against these weapons are some huge names, you know, like physicist uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, uh, Elon Musk, uh, the, the owner of Tesla cars, uh, co-founder of Apple, uh, Steve Warnick, Wozniak. Uh, Felim, what is the problem with these systems? W well, the problem is that uh, sort of the, so the pitch. For, uh, by the proponents of these lethal autonomous weapon systems or killer robots is that they can revolutionize warfare, that we can take the human equation out of the battlefield and have precise uh, weaponry that isn't affected by human impediments like exhaustion, fatigue, anger, quest for revenge, or battlefield-imposed psychosis, and they can go in cleanly and take out enemy combatants, which by definition will save the lives of combatants on our side, your side. Now the problem is, is that in spite of that positive uh, spin on things, uh, killer robots, lethal autonomous weapon systems have profoundly serious legal, humanitarian, moral, and technical problems that really make them a non-starter in terms of uh, deployment and adoption uh, around the world. And that's why there is a growing movement, as Cedric mentioned, to, for a preemptive ban on these weapons, and it's well justified. David, when we first met uh, a few months ago, we discussed, uh, you know, David introduced my, himself to me as a professor of ethics, and when I asked him what is the biggest issue of these days, he mentioned autonomous weapons, or one of the biggest issues uh, in military ethics. Tell me a little bit uh, why. 
<clears throat> I think uh, one of the challenges we've got here, as we've just heard, there's, there's a number of issues here. And a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with the idea of machines taking decisions about taking life. Um, one of the challenges that we've got, if we really do feel uncomfortable about this, is working out exactly what it is that's wrong with this. What is the difference between a machine taking a life and somebody standing on a landmine? Still no human involved there. Why, why are we drawing a difference between these two? I think we need, to, we need to be very clear on what it is that actually makes this different from an ethical perspective, if it is different. And secondly, if we're gonna try and regulate or control, restrict or even ban this, we need to be clear on what grounds that we're doing it. And we've heard some very good reasons already why you might want to do that. But one of the dangerous routes, I would suggest, is arguing it from a technological viewpoint. If you're saying that the technology is not up to it and therefore we must never have them, then you're simply waiting until the technology is able to do it, in which case you've completely lost your argument. If you're basing the argument against fully autonomous killer robots based on technology, you're gonna lose. Maybe not today, maybe not next week, but very shortly, somebody's gonna develop a system that can satisfy whatever criteria you put in front of it and can demonstrate that, as you say, it is more discriminate than a person. It doesn't get tired, it doesn't get angry. Um, and it doesn't make mistakes, certainly not as many mistakes as people. And when you're presented with that, what are you going to come back with? Cedric, do we have the technology? Is that technology available? Do we have already killer robots existing or de even deployed? Or where, where is it standing? And which countries are leaders at this development? Uh, those are all excellent questions. Uh, the the real issue is, yes, these weapons and weapon systems, I guess more properly, actually do exist to a certain degree. Uh, so we're not in a complete, uh, you know, everything is going to be a series of killer robots on the next battlefield. That is not going to happen right now. But the technological capabilities do exist for certain elements of these autonomous weapons to be used. The beginning of these uh, you can see in the drones that are used, the unmanned aerial systems that are used currently in warfare. And just like the airplane was really the beginning of aerial warfare, of course we had balloons before that, but all balloons, airplanes, all of these things were first used as information gatherers. They were intelligence gatherers, and then they were weaponized. You know, look at the airplane in World War I, that's exactly what it was used for, and then it developed into a weapons platform. Then you look at how it was refined throughout history through World War II, and of course on up to the present day. Then you see what we did with, especially the United States, what we did with the current form of, the most popular form of autonomous weapons, the drone, and the drones were first reconnaissance aircraft, and then they became weaponized. And that's kind of the stage that we're at in terms of deployment. But what is going on in the laboratories in countries like the United States, Russia, China, uh, Israel, those are the leading countries right now in this area with, of course, uh, 
played by the United Kingdom. Uh, France, as well, has, has some capabilities in this area. So what you're looking at is a lot of thought, scientific thought, going into these weapons. A lot of the research and the operational requirements for these are driven by the current state of technology. But I, the idea of exactly when and how to employ these is the subject of some debate even within military circles. So there are a lot of people within the military who are looking at this and saying, I don't know if we really want to go here. They are looking at it from an ethicist point of view, or at least trying to do that. And that's something where you know we need to ask the questions that you mentioned. There are very, very clear issues here because there's an impact uh, not only in terms of operations, but also in terms of legality. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get to more of that. But, but those are the kinds of things that we're looking at right now with these weapon systems. Uh, tell him, I mean, uh, are you, as, as uh, part of, you know, as, as a human rights researcher, are you concerned about whose moral or ethical or legal responsibility it will be, you know, to kind of handle these weapons, you know, and if something goes wrong, to, to uh, be held accountable for this. Yeah. Um, well, so David mentioned the uh, the ethical concerns, and I'd, I'd like to focus strictly on the legal issues for now. Um, so I'm, I work for an organization called Physicians for Human Rights. I used to work for Human Rights Watch. As part of the international human rights movement, basically our modus operandi in terms of uh, is based on international law. And so when we look at killer robots, uh, you know, uh, lethal autonomous weapon systems, we look at how do they comply or not with existing international law, and particularly international humanitarian law, which are also known as the rules of war, okay? So there's basically four basic components. The first is that for something to be legal under warfare, then there has to, it has to meet with the criteria of uh, distinction. That means that any type of, that on the, on the battlefield, there has to be an ability and a capacity and a willingness to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants, okay? So is that person a soldier or is that a farmer carrying a rake? Okay, that's the most simple uh, metric. Um, but, and when you're thinking about, about killer robots, it's more complex than that because uh, distinguishing between uh, whether a, a combatant, a soldier, is injured, is trying to surrender. These are things that are, up to now, impossible, really, to program into an algorithm, okay? It requires very subtle cues in terms of voice tone, facial expressions, body language, and these are things that, that machines really just can't do. So distinction. The second thing is the idea of proportionality. Proportionality means that on the battlefield, there's this delicate balance between the expected military harm versus, versus the anticipated military advantage of any action on the battlefield. And essentially, there needs to be, there should not be an excessive amount of harm in order for advantage, okay? If there's too much harm, it means you probably committed a war crime, okay? Now, this is probably, so this is, this means most easiest example, there's a 12-story building full of maybe hundreds of people and there's a sniper on the 11th floor. 
Proportionality means that you don't take a missile and destroy the entire building. You focus on getting rid of that one sniper, okay? Now, so there, and there's questions uh, as to whether machines will be able to exercise that judgment because proportionality changes, because the battlefield changes. They're very fluid environments. So you can program a killer robot to do something, but then the battlefield's on and the conditions can change. And again, we're going under international law, international standards. In 2013, the UN special expert on extrajudicial uh, killings uh, ruled that proportionality hinges on human judgment, that there's a human judgment factor. Another source, the International uh, Committee of the Red Cross has said that proportionality hinges on common sense and good faith. Now, those are things that you can't program, okay? Um, the third issue I want to talk, so distinction, proportionality, um, the third issue, really important is the idea of accountability, okay? War crimes are crimes. When soldiers break uh, violate the, the, the laws of war, they need to be prosecuted. Why? Because if people get away with murder, they're just going to keep committing murder. There's a deterrent effect, okay? Now, lethal autonomous weapon systems, how do you prosecute a, a, a machine? Unless the programmer or the commander in charge of those machines has intentionally and deliberately programmed them to indiscriminately kill, if they go and commit war crimes, there's no way for there to be any type of prosecution. A crime requires two things. There's an act and there's also intent or mens rea. There is no intent, there's no state of mind in a machine. So this key idea that's the foundation of international humanitarian law of being able to prosecute war crimes goes out the window. There's, there can be no meaningful accountability when machines are doing the killing. David, I see I'm making a lot of notes. Would you like to react to this? Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's so many really good ideas here, um, so many things to unpack. Um, I think before I go in, w start delving into that, though, um, it's worth just clarifying something, just in case there's any misperceptions out there, because we started off by talking about drones, okay? Um, we need to be very clear here. There are no autonomous drones out there at the moment. We're talking about things that could happen and technology which could be applied very soon but there are no autonomous killing machines out there at the moment, certainly in that guise. We have other types of weapons that are deployed now which are certainly close to autonomous. They are highly automated and have a great deal of control. Once you turn them on, they will act um, much faster than a human being can make decisions, which is precisely why they're given that level of control. An example being, for example, a phalanx system on a frigate designed to protect against incoming missiles, supersonic missiles, multiple supersonic missiles. If you had a human operator in that system trying to decide whether or not the, 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 the defensive measures should be launched, um, you're going to lose your frigate. You're going to lose your ship. So your decision there is whether or not to arm the system or not arm the system. Once, it arm, once it's armed, the decision is, making, is being made by the system. We have systems like that right now. We do not have fully autonomous killer drones flying around in any combat space, but we could have soon. So that's, that's what we're talking about. Um, the, all of, the, all of the, 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 the areas that have been brought up are, are, are certainly worth 
unpacking uh, further. Um, I think the accountability question is, is possibly the thorniest of the of, of the of the, um, the the ethical, or certainly the legal uh, challenges. There's a lot of things that you can do to attempt to address the other areas. Um, the two possible answers that could come up with who's accountable for a machine when it decides uh, when it goes wrong, when it does the wrong thing, who could be accountable? And two potential answers that could come back there is firstly you have command responsibility, just as you would have in any other environment. If a soldier does something wrong and the commander should have known about it and prevented it or, um, or chose not to, um, the commander is also liable for that action. So that's one possible route for accountability if we see these weapons. Um, uh, and excuse me, do we have this framework already in place? Yes, or yes, this is, this is very well established. It's um, uh, just because it, it's uh, the ICC statute, the International Criminal Court statute, makes it very clear. If you're in charge of somebody who does something wrong and you should have known about it, could have known about it, or did know about it and didn't stop it, then you are also responsible for that action. And it doesn't just stop with your immediate commander. It goes all the way up potentially to your prime minister or your president. It goes all the way up. So in that sense, command responsibility could be one way of addressing this. The other one is, I think, harder and less satisfying, certainly from an ethical perspective, but it would be to take um, the route that some companies have found themselves on the wrong end of the law by using a corporate manslaughter idea where an institution can be held responsible for an institutional decision. I find that inherently less satisfying because there's no individual specifically being held responsible. But it does offer another potential way of addressing the accountability if we see these weapons being deployed on a large scale. Yeah, I'd like to add to that because uh, you know what, what David mentioned is absolutely right. In the military setting, uh, it is absolutely imperative that there is, first of all, one chain of command and commanders responsible at every level. So, uh, you know, from a satisfaction standpoint, if something does go wrong, that is probably the right way to go. The military, at least as it's traditionally been set up, is not very keen on the corporate responsibility idea that David mentioned. Uh, these are institutions that have, of course, been around you know, really since the dawn of human history. And when it comes to the kinds of things that we do and how we hold people responsible, uh, we look to the commander as being the one that is in charge and therefore responsible. And what that means is that ignorance is no excuse. In other words, if a commander fails to uh, check on his people, to understand what they're doing, and to understand the consequences of the bad things that they have potentially done, then that commander is held responsible for those actions. Felim, I was talking about this movement ban the automated weapons or uh, autonomous weapons. Uh, some big names, Stephen Hawking and, and what have you. What are their biggest arguments? Because we've seen this before, when the nuclear uh, weapons were being developed, chemical weapons, you know, and other weapons which really caused enormous, enormous harm, um, <clears throat> and n nothing really stopped it. Um, 
what, what are their biggest arguments why to, why to ban those weapons of these very, very accomplished uh, scientists or yeah, scientists and businessmen? And so, uh, you know, the main arguments are based on international law. So those three factors I mentioned before, distinction, proportionality, and accountability. But there's another one, and that's something that goes by the name of the Martin's Clause. Now, Martin's, the Martin's Clause is built into uh, Addendum 1 of the Geneva Conventions. So we're talking about the rules of war. And the Martin's Clause imposes the requirement that any new military technologies, technologies of warfare, uh, need to be need, need to meet the requirements of two things: um, the principles of humanity and the dictates of conscience. I'll say that again: principles of humanity and dictates of conscience. Now, I'm going to ask you: if you have a drone that has been cut off, that that is that is autonomous, it can make the decision to select a target and to choose a target and to and to make the kill, then. They don't present any, they have no humanitarian impulse. They do not have a conscience. So there's, this is something that's kind of a it's, a, it's a slam dunk in terms of deciding whether these weapons should be legal. And, and I'd add this, that this isn't just some fuzzy, you know, technical term from some legal book. The Martin's Clause I just mentioned has been used successfully as a reason to ban weapons, including, as recently as 1995, battlefield lasers designed specifically to blind soldiers on the battlefield. Okay, that, those, are, those are banned because they were seen as being against basic humanitarian principles, against dictates of conscience. David, how many, I just, I want you to follow up on that, but you know, I want to ask you, how many weapon developers, or how many, you know, such as DARPA, for example, uh, have principles of humanity in their consideration. Okay, um, I think it's fair to say that uh, ethicists and lawyers probably get involved at a far too late stage of development uh, in most kind of uh, technological developments. I've got my opposite numbers in the US. Uh, one of them uh, does work with DARPA, but she tends to get added into projects fairly late by which point um, the arguments are uh, quite hard to make because the system is already well developed. That's quite worrying. Um, the UK has um, a, a similar setup. Uh, they tend to try and ask those questions earlier there, which I think is a very, very good thing. It means the development time is slower and longer um, and more expensive. So you can see why it's not an attractive model uh, if you are trying to get something ready fast. Um, but I think it's, it's very important. Um, and specifically on the Martin's Clause, as a philosopher rather than a, a lawyer, I love the Martin's Clause. It's fantastic. It's, it's, it's added into every single piece of law of armed conflict. And it basically says, just because it's not illegal doesn't mean you're allowed to do it. Um, it, it it's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, just a reminder that um, you can't get everything into positive law. And sometimes, um, just because you can identify a gap does not mean you're allowed to exploit that gap. Um, I, 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 it's, it's a, marv a marvellous get a loyally get-out clause, just saying we, we might not have thought of everything. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a great fan of the Martins clause. I want to ask you, you know, as a, a former military man, a military expert, uh, if, you, if there is a country like UK which is slowing by imposing some sort of uh, humanitarian or ethical controls on development of the weapons, 
uh, and slowing in the development of that weapons and in deployment, you know, isn't it actually endangering the country in the sense that other countries, you know, such as China, where they don't care about any humanitarian principles at all, uh, would develop these weapons much faster, you know, and, and actually become more dangerous in that sense? Well, I think, uh, Tomasz, I think that is a very important aspect of this because on the one side you can be as perfectly ethical, if I may use that term, as, as all of us would like us to be, or like our side to be. But if the other side, let's say it's China, just as an example, uh, does these developments in a way that circumvents the ethical standards uh, that we expect of our developers, that we expect of our military forces, then we would be at an operational disadvantage in a time of war. Because what we could expect, if there were to be a war between the United States and China, we could expect them to use these kinds of weapons against us. So the question then becomes, do we go down that road against them and in essence copy them and throw ethics out the window? Or do we keep ethical, ethically responsible policies in the development of weapons and enhance those policies, but with the proviso, where we go back to proportionality, as Philem mentioned, that we actually look at that and say, hey, these guys are doing bad things to us or are about to do bad things to us. What are the countermeasures that we can use against them? Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that we will use autonomous weapons against them, but it could mean that we damage those weapons in a way uh, that they could not be used. And there are, are ways to do that. Uh, it depends on how robust they are in defending those weapons. But that's, that is probably the route that we would take. But it is an absolute consideration that we need to understand what the other side is doing and be prepared to counter it. So when you look at that, just a real a quick historical analogy, when you look at what happened in World War II, in World War I, chemical weapons were used by both sides in World War I. World War II, chemical weapons were not used on the common field of battle. Yes, they were used in other contexts, but they were not used in, on a common field of battle such as you know, the D-Day invasions or uh, you know, the, the battle for, uh, you know, to cross the Rhine or anything like that. But what they were doing, uh, the, uh, the Germans in this case in particular and the Japanese also, they did not really use chemical weapons against us because they were afraid we would use them against them. And so there's this fear factor that can also be brought into this where both sides have, in essence, what happened during the nuclear standoff, where you have a situation where you have mutually assured destruction, in essence. So that's a, a borrowing something from the nuclear world and uh, putting it possibly into this context as well. Can I just follow that up? Because um, the certainly one of the reasons chemical weapons were not used in the Second World War by either side was deterrence. A, a fear that the other side would do it too. But I'm, hope, I'm, I'm hope, thinking about this as a sign of optimism rather than pessimism. There was more to it than that, thankfully, in that the deterrence idea doesn't make sense when you start looking at the fall of the Third Reich. Deterrence only works when you've still got something to lose. Um, the classic deterrence theory, the classic realist military thinking would suggest that if you're gonna lose anyway, why, why not use those weapons? But thankfully, 
there was also, by that point, 20 years of organizational culture in the Wehrmacht which said that we don't use this type of weapon. This, they're wrong. And even when they were about to lose, that wasn't enough to overcome the organizational ethos that these weapons are not, not to be used. They're not to be used ever, regardless of whether you're about to lose or it can prevent you from losing. Um, so I'm thinking of this as a, an optimistic way. It is possible to change organizational culture from a, a military that was happily using them throughout a conflict to we're just not going to use it regardless if we're going to lose. It's possible to do that. And that, that's, that's a good thing. I like to pick up on that, and uh, I think that's a great point. And I would say, you know, one of the arguments, remember at the beginning we said the argument, one of the arguments for having these types of weapons is it takes out that human factor. Because humans were too burdened with emotions, and it causes problems. People get angry, people have rage, people want revenge. What's overlooked is, I mean, David gave a perfect example, is that people could have used, the Germans, the Nazis could have deployed chemical weapons to defend their cities. They didn't. And I think it's worth noting that emotions have, a two, have two sides. And that is, you know, we are also have an intrinsic desire to preserve life not just our own. And you see that throughout history on the battlefield. One of the most infamous incidents of, of, of mass killings on the battlefield in the last uh, 50 years or so involving US troops was the massacre at a Vietnam, Vietnamese village called My Lai, in which uh, a, a unit took out, I think killed like hundreds of men, women, and children, cold blood. Um, but what's less reported is that there was a helicopter crew, a U.S. helicopter crew, that actually took out their weapons and were about to kill U.S. troops in order to protect Vietnamese civilians who were f facing imminent extrajudicial execution. So there is a powerful reason why we should ensure that human control of weapons remains despite the unpredictable, unpredictable factor. The other point I want to make is, one thing that's really powerful for me is, you know, who is opposed to these? Like, besides people like me and ethicists, uh, if you take a look, you know, there was a, a, a poll in 2013 of the United States Population National Survey, 68% of most Americans said they didn't like these weapons, they didn't want them. Now, if you, when, you, when you took a look at the data, 73% of military, uh, active military personnel in the US who were polled were opposed. So actual act, active military personnel don't want these weapons, okay? Um, who else is opposed? Well, as of last year, we now have thousands of uh, artificial intelligence uh, researchers and experts, people who will build the algorithms for these machines, who have signed a pledge saying they will not touch these with a 40-foot pole. They will not get involved. Hundreds of tech companies have also said these are not worth doing. So I think that's really indicative of this. Now, last thing I want to say is why would they have these feelings besides what we've already talked about? Well, the fact is, is that this technology is in the end, once it, it, it's kind of cheap. Once you have these drones, it's outfitting drones that are autonomous, that basically you program them to go and kill something, and they will do it. It's a cheap weapon, and it's a real problem for proliferation. It won't just be Czech military forces and the US military or the Russian military. This can easily spread so that you have Islamic State deploying this in urban centers. This, this is a real problem. And so and in, in history, we've seen how you can actually stop this with international law. In the 1970s, it was perceived that bioweapons, that weaponizing, for example, viruses like smallpox or plague or Ebola as a weapon 
weapon. It became known as the poor man's nuclear weapon. Anybody could do it. It's very crude. So there's an international ban on these types of weapons. And guess what? It's, it's, it's held. People recognize that this is too dangerous to cross that line. The same could be done for this technology. But is it going to be, I mean, it may be much cheaper than, you know, other weapon systems, but is it going to be that easy to use? I mean, like, don't you have to have, to have like, a really computer, you know, uh, algorithm experts, you know, scientists to, to, to manage these weapons? You'd or to program them? You would be surprised how many experts in various fields are not necessarily as ethical as they should be. And many of them go work for the other side. Uh, so it just takes one to do something like that. So if you, you know, if you look, for example, at the Islamic State and some of the things that they've been able to use you know, within their capability, uh, some of them came pretty close. And they were, their use of social media, although not a weapon in the classical sense, is still a weapon, is still a propaganda tool. And their ability to do that is indicative that when you do release these technologies, these technologies can fall into the wrong hands uh, very easily, and as time goes on, you will not need the, uh, the types of computers that you had before. I was almost going to say you don't need the computing power, but actually that doesn't, that's not necessarily true. Uh, the computing power will come to you. Think of the iPhones and Android phones that you have in your pockets. Those are supercomputers in essence, or what used to be supercomputers. And what used to take an entire room to have that same computing power is now in your pocket. So that kind of technological advancement makes it very clear that the development of the computing power necessary to power an autonomous weapon could easily fall into the hands of somebody who was not constrained by the rules of war, uh, by the international conventions that we understand and believe to be proper. I want to ask him that now, David, from a com very completely different point of view is, I mean, this, you mentioned this technological development and this, it can, uh, you know, a lot of things that started as military, uh, you know, again, I will use the example of DARPA, you know, DARPA was the institution which came up with internet, DARPA was the institution that developed uh, driveless, I mean, the driverless cars and what have you. Can something good come out of it for, for the civilian? Because, you know, I'm sure that a lot of civilian and normal civilian companies uh, do not have the budgets the, the defense, uh, you know, have in, in United States, in, in Russia, in China. Can it be also something positive in the future? Um, absolutely. Um, I, think, I think one of the interesting areas there is, um, actually, I think the balance has already started to, to, to swing away from states um, and organizations like DARPA, frankly, because private corporations have got more money. Um, so you look at the technological um, advancements that are being made at the moment, and they're not coming from the military into the civilian sector anymore. They're coming from the civilian sector into the military. Um, just look at the procurement cycle in the, in the, in the UK. It can take us 20 years to get a radio. Um, it's, 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 uh, whereas um, you, can, you can go to private industry and just get something that is out this year, and you can equip everybody straight away. Um, the, 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 the money and the power in development terms is definitely not with the state in the way it was uh, 20 years ago, say. Um, but yes, I can think of a couple of examples where this kind of technology is already being developed and will continue to, to be developed and could be enormously helpful. So for example, um, looking after undersea cables. Um, at incredible depth, 
Um, you can't operate those using people. Um, you can't get people down there. And it's too deep to have meaningful control over um, the, um, the, the, the maritime vehicle uh, which is doing the repairs. So actually what you need is something that can look and follow a cable, find out what's wrong and fix it on its own without additional instructions, without, without, um, without um, input. And it will carry on doing that and you can just set it off and it will look after a section of cable and keep us all connected on the internet and we're all very happy. Um, so something like that is, is a, a very positive um, use of, uh, of autonomous technology, I'd suggest. Um, so it's, it's not all bad. It, it, it can be very good. Yeah, so uh, I, I agree with David. In theory, that sounds great. Um, but history tells us that um, that type of reasoning for multiple examples of other weapons systems that have eventually been banned uh, really didn't hold water. Like, give you an example, cluster munitions. There's this idea that cluster munitions, look, the, the reasoning was we're only going to use these in really remote places, like in desert areas where there's no human, other humans around except those really bad insurgents or that identified uh, enemy force. Well, cluster munitions have been used throughout the occupied territories, for example, in Palestine. The uh, United States deployed them extensively in Iraq in intensely populated urban areas. So even though that's a lofty goal, I agree with David, like putting them somewhere where there aren't, there aren't any people around, uh, not gonna get hurt, but the thing is, is that these things have a tendency to spread. Um, and another thing in terms of the, uh, one thing I'm, again, I wanna be positive about this, and one of the things I'm encouraged by is Google uh, was, has been working on something called Project Maven for the Department of Defense in the United States. Now, Project Maven was basically a system to, uh, uh, developing a system for autonomous analysis of drone footage. Okay, now which could eventually be worked into a killer robot lethal autonomous we weapon system. Now what happened is that the technologists and the researchers, the Google staff, revolted and said, we don't want any part of this, stop it, or we're out of here, we're, we're going to go to Facebook, or we're going to join Twitter. Um, and that's a potent weapon in Silicon Valley. And so guess what, uh, Google said, as soon as that contract is over, this year, maybe this month, we're out of that. We're not doing anything more with these types of weapon systems, and we now have, we agree in writing that we will not do anything in terms of weapons development that's against international law and against human rights. So one of the other sides of that, and I think that's, you know, certainly an argument that the Google folks worked, uh, that were working Project Maven had, and it's, it, it is definitely something that has to be examined. The other side of that, if you can't have positive identification of a target set, then the chances of human rights violations go up. Because if you don't understand exactly whom you're targeting and how you're going after them, who they really are, and in what context uh, that you're seeing them in, that then becomes a very dangerous and risky enterprise from an operational standpoint. And that's where you have to balance, yes, there are absolute human rights concerns with these types of, of technologies. On the other hand, if I develop these technologies or if a country develops these technologies in a way uh, that enhances human rights or enhances uh, the ability to discern friend from, fro from foe or combatant from non-combatant, 
that becomes the critical arena right there. And so you have to have a balance where uh, you really deploy these technologies in a way that is reflective of the laws of war and also of all of the ethical and humanitarian concerns that military officers are supposed to uphold. But I, I guess all of, all of you on this panel agree that it's only a question of time before these weapons are produced or weapon systems are produced and in use. The in-use part, I think, depends on what happens next in a legal sense and in an operational sense. Uh, you know, if we have more walkouts a la Project Maven, maybe not, maybe not so fast. Uh, or if there's an international convention that says we're not going to do autonomous weapons, then maybe the technology will be developed, but it will be on the shelf and may not be put into use. So there are several different scenarios that could play out with this. Uh, the most likely scenario is probably some kind of a hybrid between these, that some of these weapons will be produced, uh, but that when people see their lethality or are, get concerned about their lethality even more than they already are, they may say, yeah, we don't want this, or there are too many risks associated with this. Uh, so that's, that's some of what could happen, uh, but it, a lot of it requires understanding on the part of people uh, who are voters, who understand you know, what, that they have an influence here, and that is, you know, if, if people demand that these weapons be stopped, they will be stopped. So I would just say um, these are not inevitable, okay? So, and I would, based on historical precedent, there are examples of weapons that we have banned in the past because we have judged that they are simply beyond the dictates of, hum of, of, huma of hum humanitarianism and the dictates of conscience. So I mentioned bioweapons. David made the example, a really good example at the beginning, like, so what's the difference between like a, like a, a killer robot and a, a landmine? Landmines are illegal, okay? There's a, there's a convention, the Ottawa Convention banned the use of landmines. So, and there are 28 countries pushing actively now for a ban. Who wants these? Who wants these, these weapons right now? The United States, Israel, South Korea, and Russia. Okay, and what is their rationale? They say, well, you know what? It's premature to ban these. Let, let's, let's, let's see what we can do with them because maybe they can have a humanitarian uh, use in the future. Uh, I, I don't buy that. And I say that there, we have faith in the international system that has shown that you can actually ban things and make sure these types of systems don't get proliferated, don't get common use, that they are consigned to the dustbin of technological history. So I think the distinction between them being developed and them being used is important there because it's going to be much harder to stop their development than it is to stop their use, and both is going to be difficult. Um, but the former, uh, the latter is going to be easier than the former because uh, I cannot imagine any state is going to stop development on this because they would lose that competitive advantage that we talked about before or even be able to respond um, you can agree not to use something and still make sure that you have it should you change your mind. Um, so just being pragmatic about it, I, I can see that going that way. Um, I think I'm optimistic that there could be legislation. I'm not sure whether the legislation would completely ban their use, though. I think the, probably the best we can do is restrict their use 
um, in much the same way as the landmine ban, which is a very good example. But let's be clear, the Ottawa Convention refers to a particular type of landmine, anti-personnel landmines. Other types of landmines are still acceptable, but we have agreed, with a few exceptions, but the international community has broadly agreed that anti-personnel landmines, they're not proportionate, they're not discriminate enough, um, and the long-term implications of, of deploying something like the, the scatter mines that um, uh, are still being used by, by some states are horrendous. It, they're not a weapon that goes away when you, when you end a conflict. They're still there causing maiming and suffering up to decades after a conflict is over. Therefore, the majority of states have agreed that th these, are not, these are not weapons that we're, we're prepared to use anymore. So it's possible to regulate, it's possible, but we'd need to decide, we'd need to work out where we're gonna regulate. What, where are you gonna draw the line? What, what, what are you gonna count as an autonomous weapon system? And how are you gonna draw the distinction between what is acceptable and what is not? That is an absolutely excellent point that David made here because what you're looking at is normal weapon systems are also going to become more autonomous. So what you already have is going to get even more independent, if you will. Let's take a, you know, the operational systems on a fighter jet, for example. Uh, there is a lot of automation that already happens within various fighter jets. And as you move into the different generations of, of fighter jets, you know, you look at the first F-16s compared to the F-16s today, you look at the F-22 or the F-35 in the U.S. inventory, and you see a, a greater degree of automation. So the kinds of things that we're looking at here will not only be about new weapons, but also about existing weapons and the, the further developments of those weapons. Uh, I would like to now <clears throat> give some uh, prostor to, I mean, some space to the audience. Uh, <laughs> would you... <laughs> yeah, th this is my ninth panel in four days, so bear with, bear with me. Uh, do you have any questions you would like to ask uh, our guests? Thank you. Uh, uh, just first, I'd like to say I totally agree about banning stuff like this. But if we thinking about this, couldn't this be a good way in sort of saving lives if both sides have these autonomous uh, weapons, uh, many lives can be saved, and it could even be like your example with the nuclear bomb, which not many uh, countries use it on the end because we've seen what they can do. Right, yeah, the, I think the, one of the ideas behind autonomous weapons between you know, the development of those and the opera operationalizing of those weapons uh, is the idea of let's save lives, or at least let's save the lives of our troops. Uh, so the more you automate and the more you have things that protect your own soldiers and sailors, airmen, and Marines, you're looking at a, a way to protect that force and to save it for something else potentially, or to really shield it from the catastrophic effects of the battlefield. I mean, you compare what happened, let's say, 100 years ago in World War I with the casualty figures of the latest conflicts, and it's a world of difference. I mean, it's very clear that the trend in casualties has gone down. 
Zero, of course, is the only acceptable answer, and, and especially with that, with that kind of thing. But if you do that, and you just have a war of, in essence, of video games or something like that, then you run into the possibility of people not understanding, and this is kind of a, a bad argument to have to make, but you kind of run into the possibility of people failing to understand the potential lethality or not worrying about uh, losing their freedoms, for example. Let's say there's a, an autonomous weapon war between the United States and China or the United States and Russia, and the only thing that is deployed is a series of autonomous weapons. Some people might say, well, no, doing their thing on the battlefield, they're just a bunch of robots, who cares? Who cares who wins? And that could be a danger in and of itself. But uh, the premise of your question is absolutely spot on. We discussed the... Yeah, I'd just like to address two things. So thank you for agreeing that we need a, preempt, a preemptive ban, because that's what I'm saying. I say preemptive ban before development gets out of control, a, a ban on development and deployment use. But the second thing is your analogy in terms of use of nuclear weapons. The first, the bad news is the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which, is, which basically regulates and, and analyzes risk of nuclear warfare. If you take a look at their atomic clock, we're as close to midnight, which means nuclear exchange, as we have been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, you know, nuclear warfare is not something that we left behind, you know, 1989. It's as real and actually more problematic than it has been. We've been lucky, okay? Um, the other issue is that your, what you say is, if, it was, if we were dealing with rational actors, and if we were dealing with, you know, the Cold War era, which there's basically gonna be two states, the United States, like, you know, Warsaw Pact and NATO, and nobody else gets involved. That's easier to control. But we're talking about this, uh, this, this era of non-state actors, of irrational actors, of actors that are bent on self-destruction along with destruction of their enemies. So again, Islamic State, if these things, once the genie's out of the bottle, everyone's gonna get them. And the other thing is, I, I spent a lot of time working on uh, accountability in Myanmar. We're close to the two-year anniversary when Myanmar security forces launched this near genocidal assault on Rohingya in northern Rakhine state, killed 10,000 and forced 740,000 over the border into Bangladesh. Now, in the not too distant future, it would, it's, it's possible to program these systems, drones, these you know, lethal autonomous weapon systems, to kill according to skin color. Now, Rohingya happen to be much darker than most Burmese. You could send a swarm of these killer drones into Rakhine State and kill every single man, woman, and child there with any, without any risk to your own troops, to say the least. So I'll, I'll just end there. You know, we, we discussed it a little bit before uh, with the, on previous panel about this topic. You know, robots killing robots, you know, if you have just machines fighting machines, you know, without any, you know, real damage done to humans, you know, what is the point of fighting a war? It's like a computer game, you know, isn't, isn't it? Yeah, why would you accept the result? Why would you accept you've been beaten? You, you, you've had your robots destroyed, but that doesn't mean that you've actually, you don't feel like you've lost a war yet. So I, I don't think the the death, the destruction, the violence would be limited to just robots fighting robots, unfortunately, even though that does seem to offer a, a, a way forward. So we could just have a game of chess, but with robots or something like that. But uh, there, is, there is one area that, that's related to this, which I think is important. We've been talking very much about um, autonomous weapons, so drones or robots. Um, I think the real risk with 
autonomy is when you abstract from a specific weapon system and start thinking about applying machine learning and autonomous systems that are actually there just to help you make decisions. Um, but the risk there is it, um, it, they appear to offer certainty in areas of incredible complexity. Um, and that, I think, is, on the face of it, that sounds great. So we can get rid of all the doubt and uncertainty, and then we can, we can, we can act. We can act decisively. We know what the answer is, because all of this data can be crunched by an incredibly clever system, and it can give us the answer. And that is the right answer. And as I said yesterday, if, if you've ever watched somebody drive into a lake following a sat-nav that is clearly wrong, but the computer says it's OK, so you carry on driving anyway, that is my fear. It's not about an individual weapon system. It's not even about a group of weapon systems, although that's a truly horrendous picture that you've just painted there. And I can, that, I mean, <coughs> but it's, it's when you rely on a computer system. It's not making the decision. You're still making the decision, but the computer says this is the right answer, and actually it's not the right answer. And removing doubt and uncertainty in a military environment is not necessarily a good thing. Doubt and uncertainty stops you doing stupid things. And a computer that tells you that this is the answer might just make you do the stupid thing. Well, you already see some of what you're talking about, David, where uh, people are relying on computer systems to make those decisions for themselves. They want the simple answer. We have a natural human tendency to want simplicity, to want perceived order. And in that quest for perceived order, uh, we come up with an over-reliance on different computerized systems. And as a result of that, uh, the decision-making and reasoning powers that are inherent, we hope and we think, in humans already are being lost and are being subsumed by uh, technological advances and technological systems. So there is already this, to some degree, especially in services like my own, the Air Force, uh, there's an over-reliance to some extent on technology, and that it would certainly be exacerbated in the, in the future. Okay. And if, so I just add one thing. I just say there's also a presumption here that the, the tech, technology is, is, is infallible. But, you know, all the lessons of, you know, our banks can be hacked, governments can be hacked, Facebook can be hacked. I mean, this whole idea that outside actors could get into these systems and manipulate them in a way while people, once the human is out of the loop, then anything can happen to it. So the question was, you know, how do we deal with this? Like, what is a lethal autonomous weapon system? It means there's no human in there. So what I would say, and what the campaign to ban these things from being developed is, make sure there's still a human in there. It's gonna be, it's not gonna be as fast, it's not gonna be as efficient, but you help to reduce, not eliminate, the, the capacity for deadly error. So, through this talk, I think we've been talking about automated and autonomous weapons, but for me, I think an important concern is how in the near future or in the semi-near future, we'll be getting um, practically simulated conscious robots, and how will we take into account accountability and responsibility for something that can simulate morality and human thought compared to just something that's hardwired? Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of sci-fi films that have tried to answer that. Um, for me as an ethicist, my, my real challenge is what happens when a, a, a system that is, is recognized as being um, 
intelligent enough to make its own decisions, uh, decides that it doesn't want to do it anymore. So I spend a lot of time working uh, with different varieties of selective conscientious objection. That's not people who reject all war, that's conscientious objection. It's people who specifically say, um, I, I want to serve my state, I want to protect my state, I understand that, that, that violence might be necessary to do that, um, I just think this war is wrong. Um, and different states have different ways of dealing with that. But what happens when it's the machine that tells you, um, I don't think this is the right thing to do? Um, uh, back to the earlier points about um, uh, Silicon Valley. Um, this is increasingly a, a, an issue. Uh, uh, the military idea of selective conscientious objection is also a big issue in, in companies and firms and civil services as well now. Uh, but I'll be particularly interested in the challenge of what happens when the weapon says, um, I don't think this is the right thing to do. Um, I, I, I look forward to that court case. <laughs> Just a real quick uh, aspect to this. You know, if you develop a semi-conscious weapon system or something that, you know, goes to what you were talking about, uh, then the question really becomes, you know, how is the law, how are treaties going to cope with a non-human thinking being, in essence? How does that actually actually work? And being perhaps is the wrong, wrong term to use, but this entity, that would be out there, you know, it does not really fit the law structure that we currently have, and uh, all the institutions of society are going to have to deal with similar issues, whether it's in the military sector or in society at large. So it's a, it's a very valid concern, absolutely. That was a question. Thank you. I would like to ask, so far we've been talking about using automated weapons and automated systems in international affairs and, and so on, but is there a pressure or I'm certain there is, to use them in national security services, information services, and so on. And uh, one can imagine all sorts of ways of this going very badly. So I think it's a brilliant question. You mean in a way of policing or...? Yeah, for example, like uh, there would be some sort of uh, surveillance uh, equipment that would then decide, okay, this, this particular person has terroristic intentions and uh, then, uh, for example, even decide to eliminate that person and so on. Well, part of what you're talking about is already happening in China. With this, have you heard of the so social credit system that they have? Yeah, so yeah. in essence, you can't go, you know, if you are a dissident in China, let's say you wrote some poems and you know, you're critical of Xi Jinping or you know, something like that, uh, you're not going to get that first-class train ticket. And the question is, are you even going to be able to ride on that train? Because as you enter the, the ticket-buying area in the train station, they see your face and say, oh, that's that poet. That's this really bad guy. Uh, he's not going anywhere. And then, of course, the next step would be to actually eliminate that, that person, potentially. So yes, these types of things have a significant impact on civil liberties, on the ability to go from you know, from one place to another, which we take for granted, at least now we do. Uh, and if that, if that happens, if there's going to be an issue like that, uh, the one area that's going to impact people's lives would be that, you know, if, if law enforcement entities got a hold of something of this type. And in essence, in China, and to some extent in Russia, that is already happening.
And I would just add, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned China, because this is the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Massacre. And so, you know, what we have seen throughout, his, throughout the 20th century and the early 21st century is that autocratic regimes show no compunction about uh, deploying military hardware against their people. And so, can you imagine a situation in China where, in a future Tiananmen, where they send in the autonomous drones and keep the, the PLA out of the picture? then this is something that military technology bleeds into policing in a, and, civ and control of civil uh, disturbances far too often. It's inevitable. So uh, I can give you a specific example of how this is happening already. Um, in the UK, uh, the allocation of scarce resources with police. There's, there's, there's not enough police officers. I'm sure it's, not a, it's a UK thing. There's not enough police officers in the right place at the right time. How do you solve that? Well, one of the ways that they're trying to address that is by using artificial intelligence algorithms to make sure that the scarce resources they do have are in the right place to respond to whatever might come up. So are they in the right part of the city? Are they in the right part of the surrounding area, which is much, it's, you know, huge response times if you've got to get all the way across. How do you do that? And the problem is not that the artificial intelligence is giving the wrong answers. It's the police are worried about what happens when it does make a mistake or something happens that wasn't predicted and the result is, yeah, the computer didn't allocate you a policeman. And, and that's what they're worried about. If it had been a person not allocating the police car to the, to the, to the situation, then people would go, oh, human failure. Um, if, it's a, if it's a computer doing it, the police are really worried about the implications of the, the perception that it's basically the machines making the decisions. Uh, thank you very much. Before I thank the panelists, uh, I would like to, because this is the fourth day of Melting Pot, this is my eighth international panel, I would like to also thank our uh, simultaneous translators. I cannot imagine the other people sitting back there in, those, in that little thing, and I cannot imagine what it is to sit here for eight, four days straight. And now, thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much to our panelists for coming from United States, UK, United States from UK, and I thank you for coming and participating in this. Thank you.